You know, life is an amazing thing. I'm not sure if you've thought about that much or it, it, if you've pondered the fact that life is an amazing thing, but I'm willing to bet that at some point in your life you have or you will come to the point where you wrestle with the, the beauty and the value that life is. To be honest, I, I really didn't think much about the amazing nature of life until my wife and I became uh, uh, pregnant with, or my wife became pregnant. I, I wasn't pregnant, but I was part of the venture there. Um, uh, we became pregnant with my first child, my daughter, Eden. And that whole process of having and raising a child is an amazing thing. And if, if you think about it, uh, because truth be told, you have no control over how or when or where that happens. Sure, you can control and uh, can plan and try to get pregnant, but you can't control when or if it happens. And you can take care of all the necessary things that you need to do as far as the precautions that you take, the right vitamins that you take, the, uh, making sure you avoid foods and drinks that you shouldn't have while you're, while you're pregnant. And still, you have very little control over the outcome of that pregnancy. And yet, life happens. I remember the first time that I realized just how amazing life was. It was when Leah and I, my wife Leah, and I went to our, her 10-month checkup. I mean, 10-week 10, 10 checkup. 10 months would be a little long in the checkups. But 10-week checkup in which... Uh, in the 10-week checkup, if you don't know, they, they let you hear the baby's heartbeat. And that, that instance, when I heard my child's heartbeat, blew me away. But even after that, when I went back for the 20-week checkup, and there was, uh, we got to see the ultrasound of little baby Eden moving around in her mother's womb. That was amazing too. But the, the most amazing part of the whole process of bringing this child into the world was when my little girl was born. You see, you can have all sorts of opinions and feelings about what it is to be a father. And you can think what you will be like as a father. And you can think about how much you will love this child that you haven't met yet. But you can't know what it is to be a father until you hold that little baby girl in your hands for the first time. I remember feeling that everything that I was, all of my life, every experience that I had, every fear, every joy, every moment of love or pain or sorrow had just been summed up in this 10 pound, 2 ounce, screaming, beautiful baby girl. My life in that instance had been transformed by another life. It's moments like that that make us wonder what life is all about. Now that's not the only type of moment in our lives where we ask the question, what is this life all about? There are other moments as well. A, a cancer diagnosis or a, a person that you love dies or a, a career change happens in your life. But at very various moments in our lives, we are faced with this most important of questions. 
What does it all mean? What is this life all about? This life that against all odds and without any adequate scientific explanation continues to thrive and to grow. It must mean something. Now, when you're young, you tend to ask this question in the form of what am I going to do with my life? I know that I need to do something with it, but what am I going to do with it? I need to pick a career. I need to meet certain milestones that I expect of myself or that my parents expect of myself. Uh, myself. But when, we're, when we become adults, the question changes a little bit. Maybe we have children or we, we get advanced in our career and we begin to ask it more in the terms of what am I doing all of this for? Or Is this really all life is about? Is it all just eight to five, Monday through Friday, uh, play on the weekends? Is that really all it is? And at the end of our lives, most people look back and wonder, what was the meaning and the significance of my life? We wonder if we will be remembered and if our works will persevere beyond who we are in this moment. No matter what stage of life we're in, we cannot escape the question of what the meaning of life is. And in this passage that I just read from Acts chapter 17, verses 22 through 31, Paul has been going throughout the region of what would be modern day Turkey and Greece, and he has been sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with these various cities that he's come to. And now he comes to the city of Athens. And the city of Athens, before Paul comes to it, or long before Paul came to it, was a a famous city. And it was the capital of the Greek empire at its height and the furthest of its reach. Today, if you were to go to Athens, you would see places like the Parthenon and the Acropolis. It's famous for those things even to this day. And as Paul is passing through this famous city, he notices that on every street corner and every uh, little shop, there's a little shrine that is set up. And in that shrine is a statue to some god or another. And then you might come to a, to a public building and there's a big statue of some god that's built up. And then if Paul were to look up the hillside in Athens, he would have seen the temples of Apollo and Athena and Zeus and Ares and several other Greek gods. So Paul makes his way up this hilltop. And when he gets to the very top, he reaches a place called the Areopagus. Now, the Areopagus was an open forum. And in that open forum, the greatest minds of that day debated the very meaning of life. You had the Stoics who believed that the meaning of life was to endure pain and suffering and to somehow overcome it and rise above the pain and suffering that this life naturally has. And you had the Epicureans, and the Epicureans were actually the opposite of that. And they basically said, look, there is really no meaning of, to life. And so the meaning that you get out of life is in the pleasure that you experience. So have fun, live it up, eat good food, enjoy good things, because that's all that life is. So when Paul walks up, they recognize that Paul is, is different. He's dressed different. He acts different. 
And they recognize that he believes something different than they do. And so because they're great thinkers and they like to debate things, they just invite Paul to come on up and give a speech. And so Paul lays it to them. He, to use a hunting analogy, he empties both barrels in one shot. You know, he just pulls both triggers. So he, he opens up with them and he gives this masterful speech. And in it, he addresses three blind spots that the Athenians had. He starts by telling them that he perceives that they are very religious. Now, in this, he's being a little sarcastic because he begins to say, you know, guys, I was coming up through your city and I noticed that you have a, you have a statue to every God that you could perceive of. And just in case you miss somebody... I noticed that you have a statue to what you call the unknown God. Now, this is what you might call the religious version of hedging your bets. They didn't want to they, they wanted to get every God that they could possibly get. And in case they miss somebody, they they made a statue to an unknown God. You see, the men of Athens, for all of their concern for truth and the meaning of life, had failed to recognize the only God who was the author of life and truth. Sure, they had given lip service to every conceivable God that they could think of, but that was all it was. It was just an effort to appease a God so that they could get along in this life and hopefully get some favor from whomever had control over the forces of nature. We want to have as many children as we can and we want our fields to be fertile. So let's make a statue to Aphrodite and worship that. We want uh, uh, blessings in our efforts in war. So let's make a statue to Ares and worship that. And you know, truth be told, most people still practice this form of religion today. Now, you might be thinking, well, preacher, you know, we're a lot more advanced and a lot wiser than those ancient Athenians. And, you know, we know better than to worship a statue of stone like it can do anything for us. But do we really? Are we really that much more advanced? You see, in reality, most people use religion for their own ends. Sure, the names are different and we talk differently about our gods, but the intent is still the same. In reality, most people want just enough religion to appease God. So their lives will go smoothly and they'll get what they want in this life. Or they want just enough religion to get along with everybody because everybody in the South is religious. And you know you've got to talk that Jesus talk sometime just to make sure you, everybody knows you're uh, one of them. We're also like, more like the Athenians than we realize because we too have symbols that define what our lives are all about. Sure, we aren't building statues and temples to some favorite God of ours, but I guarantee you if I were to run back up the road to Walmart and walk through the parking lot and look at what is on the back of the trucks and cars in that parking lot, that I could tell you with a very close 
uh, prediction what the gods of the people in that store are. And, you know, you've seen them and you, you probably have them. And I'm not knocking at all bumper stickers and, and all that. It's good to have hobbies and it's good to, good to have uh, things that you like to do. But you've seen them, right? Salt life and bow life and mud life and 26.2, which is a marathon apparently, 26.2 miles, and Miller time and whatever. We have these stickers that define who we are. Now, don't get me wrong. Like I said, there's nothing wrong with the sticker. And if you got one, I'm not judging you. I'm not making fun of you. But don't get me wrong. I love to fish and I love to hunt. And I love to mud ride. I don't like to run, so the 26.2 wouldn't apply to me. But for many people, these are not just statements of what they like to do on the weekend. These are idols. Another way to see that we have idols in this modern world is to just take a look at your bank account. Go look at your last statement. And take out all of the necessities that you have to have. And what do you spend your money on? Where would most of your money show that you have your priorities? Besides that, let me ask, for many of us, for all of us, really, you, we can know what our idols are by just thinking about what we set our minds on when we're not thinking about anything. What is it that your mind goes to when it's idle or when you have a boring preacher on a Tuesday night and you need to think about something else? What is, what is it that your mind goes to when, and you fantasize about when nothing else is on your mind? That, more than likely, is the real God that you serve. The second blind spot that Paul points out is the fact that in all of their religiosity, the, they had missed the one true God that defines what life is. Paul explains that this unknown God is the God who made everything. Not only is he the God who made everything, but he is also the God who defines the boundaries and the purpose of our lives. This God gives us life and breath, and everything. And He does it all so that we might seek and find Him. In other words, the meaning of life is not wrapped up in running back and forth between this God and that God, between this statue and that statue, trying to appease one God or another. Nor is the meaning of life wrapped up in getting as much pleasure as possible or finding a life that is without pain. The meaning of life is found in worshiping and serving the one true God who created all things. Finally, Paul points out the last blind spot that the Athenians have, and that's something that they didn't know about at all. He tells them that... He tells them of the fact that this one true God has proven exactly who he is and he's proven exactly what his purpose is for us by sending his only son, Jesus Christ, to live, die and rise again from the dead. You see, 
The good news in this is that this only Son of God, Jesus Christ, came to give life. John chapter 1 verses 1 through 4 says, In the beginning was the Word, that's Jesus, and the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. In Him was life and the life was the light of men. In John chapter 3 verse 16, Jesus Himself puts it this way, For God so loved the world that He gave His only one and only Son that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And in John 17, 3, Jesus says, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. You see, friend, Jesus defines what true life is. In fact, Paul says to the Athenians that Jesus is the standard by which all life will ultimately be judged. Sure, you can live for the moment, enjoying whatever idol you're serving right now, but that life will never measure up to the true life that Jesus gives. My gut feeling is that at some point, you have asked the question of what your life is really all about. What your life ultimately means. And even if you haven't, there will be a day in your life when you ask that question. It may be tomorrow. It may be several years from now. But there will be a day when that question will bother you more than any other question you ever ask. And when it does, it's important that you know that whether you dedicate your life to what's on your bumper sticker or whether you dedicate your life to the things that you find in your bank account, none of those things ultimately will bring meaning to your life. Jesus Christ is the only life that can give your life meaning. So how do you gain this eternal life that Jesus speaks of? First, Paul says it here in in this passage, you need to repent. And the word repent just simply means that you turn away from the idols that you already are worshiping and you turn to the one true God and the true image of God found in Jesus Christ, his son. Repent. And the second thing is that you trust. Jesus calls you to trust in the promise that his resurrection holds. You see, the reason we ask at so many important points in our lives what this life means is because so much of this life is hard. And particularly when it comes to the issue of death, life is hard. But Jesus comes to turn death upside down. He comes as the one who brings eternal life, brings the hope of resurrection. And he calls on you by faith to trust in the resurrection that he has brought and the salvation that he has brought through his death and his resurrection. So let's go to the Lord in prayer and then Brother Kevin's going to come and, and close us out. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this night. Thank you for these men and their willingness to be patient and listen and, and focus on your word for just a few minutes. Lord, as we consider the calling of Christ to trust in 
Him and to, uh, for life and for resurrection, for eternal life and meaning in this life and in the life to come. Lord, I pray that these men would do that if they have not already. And I pray that you would move in their hearts and bring them to you. Pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.